Welcome to the PK Experience. I'm very excited to bring to you today New York Times bestselling author and popular speaker Stephen Mansfield. Now, I met Stephen a few months ago at a men's event in Kansas City where we were discussing things like leadership and, you know, frankly, how to be better men, better husbands, better fathers, uh, a lot of which was inspired by Stephen's book, Mansfield's book on manly men. But Stephen has written many other best-selling books. The one that really was his breakthrough book was The Faith of George W. Bush, which Time Magazine actually said helped shape the 2004 U.S. presidential elections and was the source for Oliver Stone's award-winning film W. Um, Stephen went on to write the book The Faith of Barack Obama, and he's written many other celebrated biographies like Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln as well. One of his most recent books, The Miracle of the Kurds, has given him the notoriety to become a respected voice and advisor in the conflict over in the Middle East between the Kurds and radical extremists. And so with that, I'm very excited to bring to you today's interview with Stephen Mansfield. We're going to keep the, the, the intro very short, Stephen, because I want to just, there's so much I want to talk to you about uh, in this hour today. And so first of all, thank you so much for joining us on the call this morning. Oh, it's my privilege. Thank you, Peter. So I was looking, uh, doing some research on you, and I'm fascinated by just your uh, your interest in all these different world leaders, these these different men who led throughout time. Your interest in politics is intriguing to me. Your interest in uh, what's going on overseas right now, and your experience uh, overseas, of course. But um, I wanted to ask you first and foremost, um, where did your where did the inspiration for you to come uh, to to better understand these different leaders? Where did that inspiration come from? Well, I, I think to understand me, you have to understand that I grew up largely in Europe. My father was an army officer and a military intelligence officer. So uh, my most formative years or formative years were in Germany during the Cold War and in Berlin, particularly during the Cold War. So I was behind the Iron Curtain for most of my teen years. Wow. Uh, my father, we literally had a, what we used to call a bat phone in our home, a red phone that glowed and rang. Uh, that my father would answer, and then he would go out on on, on movements, and uh, you know that was connected to the Pentagon and all that. So uh, my point is not to be dramatic. My point is to say that that being aware of world events, being aware of the personalities on the global stage, that was part of my upbringing. Uh, Dinner time conversation was often there. What's Helmut Kohl doing in Germany? You know, what's Brezhnev doing in in Russia? What's uh, you know what's President Nixon doing, or what have you? Uh, this was this was common stuff. My parents were. Uh, military, but intellectuals, and so uh, I grew up with that that sort of orientation. They were readers. There were always books in our home. There was always this elevated discussion. Um, and then later on in my life, when I went to university, I had some very very gifted professors who uh, turned me in the direction of majoring in history. And of course, that took me even further in this direction. And then you know, I've just been fortunate enough to uh, work internationally and live in D.C. half the year and. Um, to continue that passion. But I have to say, I'll, I'll tribute to my parents and the U.S. Army for uh, embedding these values in me early on. That uh, is fascinating. I mean, I, I, I would say to some extent it was a matter of survival then just to know what the what the policy decision makers were doing uh, at the time. So you were actually behind the Iron Curtain? Is it, did you say that? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, yeah that's, that's correct. Wow. Back before the wall came down, so to speak, Berlin was, a, was an island, what they used to call an island of freedom, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. You had East Germany, mm-hmm. and Berlin 
was a free city within East Germany. It's right. kind of a, it came out of uh, the Second World War and then, uh, you know, sort of the, the descent of the Iron Curtain. So I was living in a free city, but that free city was behind the Iron Curtain. So I literally spent my teen years growing up behind the Iron Curtain. And I had experiences like uh, my German friends would have me over to their house to spend the night. Um, and they, they lived closer to the wall than I did. And I would hear machine gun fire at night. Uh, somebody would be trying to escape from East Germany across no man's land. I would hear machine gun fire or uh, suddenly there'd be an alert and tanks would start going down cobblestone streets, which makes an astonishing level of noise. Um, the whole city. So that, you know, again, I'm not trying to paint myself as any kind of hero, but my upbringing very much was on the cutting edge. My, my high school in Berlin used to get uh, bomb threats from the Battle Meinhof gang all the time. Uh, then the helicopters would descend on the football field and, and the military police would show up and they'd go through the school with, with dogs. I mean, this was my, you know, this really, really was my normal sophomore year in high school kind of experience. Wow. So, uh, again, I'm not trying to paint myself like John Wayne here, but when you have that kind of experience, you're paying attention to what's going on in the world. You're paying attention to who's a strong leader. You're paying attention even to issues of manhood, you know, within the military structure. My father was special forces. And so all of that shaped me. All, all of that framed who I am today. Amazing. Um so did you get to have a close relationship with your father growing up or was he gone a lot or what was, what was your relationship with him like? My, my relationship with my father was fairly distant. Uh, he, he was a good man. He was a war hero. He was home every night, you know, for dinner. Um, he was not abusive uh, in any horrible way. He didn't, you know, drink and abuse the family or any of the stories that you hear from people. He was uh, a moral man. Um, but he just didn't have the emotional range to connect to his son. Uh, and I was kind of oddly made. I was both a jock and kind of, you know, I played guitar and I read books and I liked to travel and I went to art museums. So I confused him, I think. Um, so we, we became a little closer later in life. And I always knew he loved me. Mm -hmm. there's no, there's, I had no doubt about that. I always knew he loved me. He was always generous with me. I always knew he was proud of me. But, uh, no, I wouldn't say we had a, a deep connection. Uh, he, he would come in he, to the house in his uniform. He'd take off his uniform, throw on some sweats. He, he would tussle my hair, and then he would descend on the, uh, into his decliner uh, in front of the TV, recliner in front of the TV, and that was about the last you heard from him. You know, so it wasn't real close. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sorry about that. I wish it was closer. Uh, but probably even that gap, even that uh, and uh, nagging need made me uh, head in the direction I've gone now, urging men to be better fathers and to invest in their sons. So um, I'm not I'm not sorry long term. It's not an aching wound every day. But yeah, it was it definitely deformed me a bit in my earlier years. You know, I've been I've been kind of looking into this similar thing that I think you're uh, doing as well, which is sort of mending that father-son relationship and, and, and better understanding what that relationship is and how we, you know, how can we today be better fathers for our sons. And, um, one of the things that I found was that there was a point in time often in, in really healthy relationships, really healthy father-son relationships where there was a, a validation, if you will, where the son felt validated as a man. Did you ever feel like you got that from your father? You know, there are certain moments when my father said short things that stuck with me the rest of my life. Um, and that, those, were, those were issues of validation. 
Um, he couldn't, he wasn't the kind of dad who could put his arm around you and look you in the eye and say, look, I love you and I'm proud of you. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you're my son. You just weren't going to hear those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, I went through a pretty horrible time once and he, when he found out about it, he wrote me and said, you will continue to rise. You know, now that's not all he said, but, it, but in the middle of saying, look, I'm sorry, you're going through this and, and so on, but you'll continue to rise. You know, the fact that he even thought I was rising <laughs> was news to me, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, but the fact that he had confidence in me and the fact that uh, he believed that I was going to continue to rise, that I would accomplish things in the world. You have to understand, we might sit around and talk about, you know, the Ford administration, but we would not talk about Stephen's tra- trajectory towards destiny. That was not going to happen. <laughs> uh-huh. So what he did was he dropped little side bombs of instruction and affirmation. And I remember almost all of them. Um, you know, he once said to me, you know, I am proud of all of my children and what they do in life uh, for, for, for professionally and how they live their lives. Well, he couldn't. I mean, I was the only one in the car. So he was talking to me. He just couldn't talk directly to me. He just mm-hmm. didn't have those skills. Mm-hmm. But I remember those words forever. So, hey, he is proud of what I do professionally. And mm-hmm. he is, you know. And then, you know, when I had my first New York Times bestseller, you know, he bought about a thousand copies and bored his friends with them, you know, by passing them out. And, talk. and um, that's how you knew he cared. That's how you knew he was proud of you. Mm-hmm. You know, when my father came and had me sign a sign a book for one of his general friends, you know, I knew he was proud of me. But he but he didn't have the skills to do what we see in movie fathers, you know, sitting down and having long discussions and so on. You just had to learn to pick up the signs along the way. Mm-hmm. And but when I did pick them up, those were real transitional moments for me. Um, this might be a, a good segue to your story of, um, of, of in the Middle East. This is such a great story. When you, you said that you first were acknowledged as a father yourself, could you, could you tell for those that are listening that don't know that story? Could, you, you know what story I'm talking about, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, let me tell it briefly. Uh, some years ago, I was uh, part of a team of people uh, part of an organization and, and, a, and a network of people going and coming from the Middle East to help the Kurds. And the way that we did that at that time was we landed in Damascus and then went across the uh, Syrian desert into Iraqi Kurdistan. Well, uh, I got stuck once, my papers got messed up, and so I ended up for about a week and a half, two weeks in Damascus. And a friend of mine who was in the Syrian parliament at the time, that sounds very spooky now, but it wasn't then, uh, decided to have a little party for me because he knew I was stuck. I was bored. I was hanging out, eating too many pistachio nuts, you know, and trying to figure out what to do with myself. So he had a bunch of guys on a rooftop in, uh, in a, at a Damascus hotel. And we tried to talk to each other. Nobody spoke English. It was, it was a little bit, you know, stilted. But still, it was sweet of him to try to honor his American friend. At one point, an older gentleman turned to me and said, uh, Stephen, do you have a son? And I said, I do. And what is his name, this man said. And I said, his name is Jonathan. And then like he was announcing the second coming, uh, this guy said, well, then you have a new name. And he slapped his hands and everybody turned and paid attention. And I, and I didn't quite understand what was going on. I turned to the one guy who spoke decent English. And it turns out that in Arab culture, uh, a fa- being a father is such an honor to thing that when, you ha- when a father has a son, this father is given an honorary name that is a combination of Abu, which means father of in Arabic, and, uh, and a shortened version of the son's name. Well, my son's name is Jonathan, so my new name was Abu John, uh, A-B-U-J-O-N. 
And they, when that was announced, even though my son at the time was 13 years old back in the States, uh, these guys began to celebrate I me. Mean, they danced. They had waiters bring out, you know, cashews as big as your thumb and big pieces of naan and lamb and all kinds of stuff. And then the dancing started. They fired some Uzis in the air because there were a bunch of bodyguards sitting around. And, uh, and we, I'm telling you, they celebrated me as a father until about three or four in the morning when they backslapped me out of the car back to my hotel. Well, I, when I got, when I, I mean, it was wonderful and sweet and probably was a little bit of a setup. But when I got back to the room, I sat there on the edge of my bed for a long time. I think I may have dozed. But when I woke up, something was different. And I thought about it a long time. Now, you got to realize these are men I can hardly speak to. Uh, they were all Muslim. Uh, they are all Syrian. They are men I knew I would never probably see again. Uh, but something had changed. And after a while, after thinking about it, I realized what had changed. This was the first time that any phase of manhood had ever been marked and celebrated by any group of men in my, my entire life. Mm-hmm. Now, bear in mind, I'm in my mid-30s. I'm finishing a doctorate, already got a couple of master's degrees. I only mentioned that because I'm, I, it's important people know that I was not without other kinds of affirmation. Um, I done a, lived an athletic life in, in high school. Um, you know, again, bachelor's, couple of master's degrees. I was writing by that time. I was leading on staff of a large church. Um, uh, you know, I had good friends. I wasn't, I, I had the typical American life um, on, on maybe a little bit on stun, but never Not when I turned 13, not when I graduated high school, not when I graduated college, not when I got married. Never had any group of men ever sat me down and maybe talked to me or celebrated me or said, hey, you're stepping into a new phase of life. We understand that. Come join us. We're going to celebrate you. Mm -hmm. Much less, by the way, giving me wisdom for that next phase. So I was really changed by this. I was really changed by the fact that a bunch of guys I didn't know and couldn't talk to had affirmed me, had done something at a certain moment of transition into um, into a new stage of manhood. And by the way, it didn't matter to me at that moment that my son had been born 13 years before. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is that, that, uh, that these guys were celebrating some part of manhood. And when I came back to the States, I realized that this it's not just the, the rituals and the celebrations and the uh, that we need, but it's, it's the affirmation of manhood, it's the passing on of lore, it's the recognition of what manhood is and a culture of men that brings up the younger men uh, in that culture of manhood. And uh, as I began to think about that and meditate on it, read more and look around at the people I saw on the streets, the men I saw in the malls, I began to realize we were in a real crisis. Now, I mean, I knew it from reading, you know, Time magazine or whatever, but I, but I really hadn't seen it and owned it at heart level before that moment. Mm-hmm. So pretty, pretty important for me. And, and of course, now I'm a very strong advocate, not only for the restoration of noble manhood, but also for the idea that we need to have these these manly rituals at different phases of life. But the more important thing is that we are restoring righteous manhood in our generation, and then we have something to bring the young men up into, which is which had never happened for me, and that's why the I think the story reaches so many men. Yes, I think to me the favorite part, my favorite part of that story is that there is just waiters with trays of <laughs> racks of lamb waiting for a queue. <laughs> To come in, they're just off scene, you know, waiting to bring in these uh, plates of food, which is, uh, uh, that's kind of like my dream come true. But, um, well, you know, Peter, you know, it, it probably could have been these guys who were parliamentarians, many of them, 
said, we're not going to be able to talk to this American. We want to celebrate him and honor him. Is he a father? Yes, he's a father. Well, let's prepare to honor him as an Arab style. Sure. I don't care. I don't care if it was a total preparation thing. The fact is, in my experience, never had it happened before. Absolutely. So I'm so grateful for these men. I, who, by the way, I hate to say it, probably most of them are dead um, just because of what's going on in Syria, what's going on with uh, you know, the president there who's crazy man. But 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 I will always be grateful for those hours on that roof, firing Uzis in the air and dancing with Arab men, you know, and celebrating the fact that I was a father. Uh, such an amazing experience. I, you know, you talk about uh, the the missing uh, rights in the Western culture. What do we need to do to to reestablish that? Well, first of all, what what's important to know about not only these Arab men but the way it's worked through history is that you had a culture of noble manhood, which men had bought into and helped each other with. And then once you've got that, you have something you can bring the boys into. I mean, there's no sense initiating a boy at the age of 13, um, you know, or 12 or what have you, when he becomes a man, uh, into nothingness. And uh, our Jewish friends now, they've got the bar mitzvah, you know, when the, when the 13-year-old male becomes the son of the covenant. They're, they're technically and, and religiously men within the, in the, in the, within the covenant. Um, I like that idea because it, it can, I mean, it can become weird and become, you know, even our, my Jewish friends tell me, well, sometimes it's nothing but a party, but where it's taken seriously, um, it's a welcoming of a young man into manhood, into Jewish manhood. And so I'm a big believer in having the, the you know, bar mitzvahs religious or not. I'm a big believer in having rituals that welcome him. You know, when a young man's body begins to change and he steps up and, and becomes more of a man around 13 or 14. Uh, we should be talking to him as older men. We should be welcoming him into a manhood, a, a culture of manhood. We should be talking to him about what the lessons are and, and, the, and teaching him lore of what it means to be a real man. Mm -hmm. Then he's going to make another transition when he, you know, turns 18, graduates high school and goes off to work or college. Uh, then there's going to be another one when he gets married. Mm -hmm. um, when I got married, my father-in-law at the time uh, thought it was a big joke to say, hey, I've got some wisdom for, for you. Listen to me. Women don't mix. That was his big, big bit of wisdom for me. I still don't know what it means. He's yeah, just being goofy. I missed that. Uh, Sorry. Say, say that again. Women don't what? Women don't mix. It's a bit of Texas humor. You know, that's, that was the thing you wanted to tell me that women don't fit into a man's culture. Women Got don't it. mix. Well, ha, 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 but I sure could have used some great wisdom, you know, to know how to be a better husband and a father and a man. Yeah, no so anyway, what I, my point's not to complain about anybody. My point is to say, when we have a culture of noble manhood, when men like you and I are spurring each, on, uh, each other on to be good men, noble men, overcome our lesser selves, you know, lead father, husband well, uh, take care of ourselves, invest in our community, live out the Lord, what it means to be noble men, well, then we have a culture into which we can initiate the young. And my, my, my final thing on that is I always want to cite that great African proverb that says, if we do not initiate the boys, they will burn the village down. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what's going on with ISIS. That's what's going on with street gangs. That's what's going on with you know misbehaving middle class white suburbanites. You know, sort of fourteen years old. Um, if they're not initiated into a, a lore of noble manhood, well, they will burn the village down out of their anger and their resentment. And that's what's going on worldwide. So culture is a big part of it. What are the ingredients of a noble culture to invite them into? Well, the, the, uh, no, uh, first of all, culture. The culture of noble manhood or great manhood, as I call it, what we do, um, always is about uh, a definition of what a man is, an understanding that a man has exceptional powers because he has exceptional responsibilities. 
Um, he lives according to a code. There's a code of behavior. Uh, there, there's a way he treats himself. There's a way he treats other men. There's a way he orients to the world. There's a way he orients to women and children and the weak and the needy. Um, that's noble manhood. A lot of times men don't even get that code till they get into the military or they join the police. Um, but that code ought to be embedded in the soul of every young man. I'm a man. I have special powers, but I also have special responsibilities. And then the second part of that uh, becomes, and this is what I teach often, is that once a man understands the power of manhood and who he is and what his obligations and responsibilities and powers are, then he's got to tend his field. I'm taking that, that phrase from ancient language, but I believe um, very strongly that every man in every phase of his life has a field assigned to him. You can, you can say it's assigned by God. Uh, if you don't choose to go that way, you can say uh, it's, it's assigned by his own choices. Um, but he's, he's, he's responsible for a field. It certainly includes himself, his body, his soul, his wife, his children, his house, his job, his obligations to in-laws and outlaws, uh, his obligations within the community, and so on. Uh, and then there are other things that may be part of a given season of his life. But he's supposed to tend his field. He's supposed to help everything flourish. He's supposed to protect. He's supposed to defend. He's supposed to encourage. He's supposed to build. And so to do all of that, of course, he doesn't have to do it alone. He needs to have a band of brothers. And, and you, Peter, know how big I am on that theme. Absolutely. Um, that often when we get men together and talk to them about what they ought to be doing to be noble men, we tend to be giving them a long laundry list of things to do that they go home thinking they have to do by themselves. But I'm a believer that a man needs a band of brothers. And a band of brothers uh, is that men with, a group of men with whom he does life. Uh, and uh, the goal of a band of brothers is to, of course, have a lot of fun and, and hang with each other, uh, you know, be friends, but, but also to achieve that free fire zone, I call it, where anything that they, can, they need to say to each other to help each other be better is said. Um, and, and then they're coached along to become better, whatever it is, manhood, weight, how to handle a checkbook, how to love your wife more tenderly, how to relate to your son, whatever it is, whatever those skills are. And so all of that uh, is in my core definition, and I, and I would add then live, living for the glory of God. Um, I, don't, I know not everybody you know, accepts that, that view, but, but if you're asking me, I think that God ordained manhood and men live out manhood best when they're living it uh, with the grace and power of God in their lives. So all of that is my definition uh, of what it means to be a noble man and what we need to be initiating the young into. Uh, this is probably a good point to note that you've written a book, uh, Stephen Mansfield's uh, Book of Manly Men, and uh, also you just recently came out with, uh, I'm sorry, what's the name of the title again? Build, uh, build your Building Your Band of Brothers. Building Your Band building of your Brothers. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, both of which uh, dive more deeply into this subject, of course. Um, you know, you and I met a couple weeks ago out in Kansas City at a meetup, and um, one of the biggest takeaways that I got out of that conversation was the need to develop a local band of brothers. I, I, I had felt, um, you know, that I was isolated in some respects many years ago, and I recognized I need to develop my core of band of brothers. And it, it just so happened to be that it often was digital because I was meeting people in different you know, parts of the country on conferences or whatever. But, <clears throat> you know, that you pose the question, who do you call it? You know, you're tra you're out traveling, and and uh, your wife calls, or or your kid calls, and they're sick, or or there's a bump in the night, and it's three in the morning, but you're out of town. Who do you call that's local? And and it kind of just shocked me. Like I, I don't know that I don't know who I call. Um, so developing that that local band of brothers has been uh, really sort of my my uh, focus right now. We're actually meeting up on Thursday with a group of guys and kind of getting that 
going. Um, what advice do you have in developing that local brand of bro- band of brothers and uh, making it something that actually flourishes and is is valuable for each of the members in the group? Well, I'm a big believer, first of all, in the idea of band of brothers, and second of all, that men relate best when they have some indirect thing, indirect what I call an indirect connection. Um, men are not really that good at sitting around a table staring at each other and going, how are you feeling, bro? Right. You know, what's going on in your life? Um, but men need to do something. Play hoops, build, you know, help a, help a widow with their repairs on her house, uh, you know, help the elderly, uh, whatever. Um, so have something else going. Have the barbecue, have the game party, have, the, ha- have something else going. And then what you want to do is start moving towards uh, beyond just the fun and friendship level uh, to, uh, sort of a, what I call a covenantal level, which means, you know, if you've really got the workout thing together and I'm really good at my finances and you're not, I'm just making that up, of course, that we look at each other and say, dude, help me lose weight, help me, help me work out better. And in the meantime, I'll help you with your investments and your fine, you know, and you start helping each other do the, the some of the skills of manhood better mm-hmm. out of that phase, out of that covenantal phase, uh, comes the, uh, that, that free fire zone that I talk about a lot because you got to get to the point of transparency and openness where you're open to anything being addressed in your life that needs to be addressed to make you better. So if men will not push too much, the direct stare at each other's eyes, you know, try to, uh, try to dredge up emotions and, and just let it evolve naturally knowing what the goal is. I think that they'll be able to get to a level of transparency. Um, but what you, what you want is to pull down the walls, pull down all the cultural walls, you know, the Southern graciousness and the Western independence and the, the Yankee isolation and coldness. As some people say, I'm a Yankee, so I can say that. And, uh, and, and, and just have that free fire zone that, that basically I'm invested in you, you're invested in me and we're making each other better. That's what you're going for. Most men don't have it. In fact, most men, as you've said, don't even know who, who can't even name a best friend. Yeah. And for that and other reasons, it's why male suicide rates are skyrocketing. Most men report unbelievably lonely lives, um, and the, the fruit of it is, is absolute devastation throughout everything they're involved in. Yep, I agree. What, uh, what advice do you have in, in what not to look for? Um, who should you alienate uh, as you're building your brand of brothers, assuming that you know, you're wanting to create some boundaries there to make sure that there's a integrity in the, in the group? What, what are you looking for to make sure this does not creep in? Well, uh, first of all, let me say, because the only reason I even bring this up is that guys ask me all the time, uh, a woman really can't be part of your band of brothers or be a band of brother. I mean, I mean, I, I have female friends. I value them. I'm grateful for them. Um, but a lot of guys think, especially in our current generation, that uh, a woman can be uh, in that band of brothers relationship. And that's that, that's not the case. Uh, um, second of all, uh, you, you don't you, you want to move away from turning the group or allowing anyone to turn the group into a therapy session for any one person at any, any one time. It's, this, is, this is not a therapy session. This is not an intervention. Uh, it may have to be from time to time. Um, this is a guy, a bunch of guys doing life together and investing in each other's lives. So if anybody pulls the whole thing in one direction to make it about them or makes it too much psychobabble or won't maintain confidentiality, they can blow up the, the, the group. Um, so you want a bunch of guys who can keep their mouth shut, are deeply invested, um, eventually get to the point of being absolutely fierce in the pursuit of each other's good. Um, and again, we'll, we'll maintain that, that, uh, you know, free fire zone that is absolutely essential for men to grow. And, and by the way, let me just say, cause some guys listening here may be taking notes and thinking, man, this is too hard. You know, it's what us guys do all the time. If we all jump on the basketball court today and, and, and just have a pickup basketball game, 
inevitably, you're going to turn to me and say, dude, throw the ball down the field. Man, pass it off. Hey, I'm free underneath. You know, we're going to start coaching each other. We don't even know each other's names, mm -hmm. but we start coaching each other, help each other being better. You know, if, you, if you'll dribble to the left over there, you, be, you, you know, you can go to the hoop. You know, we start immediately, we get into a game like that. We start helping each other uh, and coaching each other, even risking offense. It's what men naturally do. But somehow we've been talked out of doing it with each other's personal lives. And I think it's essential that we restore that. So, yeah, you do want to protect. You, you want to protect confidentiality. You want to you want to not let one person dominate or drag the thing in a therapeutic direction. Um, but once you find it, it's going to be one of the most valuable things in your life. Awesome. Great advice. <clears throat> um, you've studied so many amazing leaders, uh, obviously, intensely and, and to, to great depth in the different books that you've written. Which is the greatest leader that you feel that you've studied? Well, from a manhood perspective, uh, the leader I most relate to is Theodore Roosevelt. Um, but my, my overall hero in life, probably the guy I most admire and to a small degree am like, I'm certainly not claiming any greatness, I'm talking about in weakness um, and, and other things, is Churchill. Winston Churchill is the one I most read about, most study, most listen to, uh, written a book on, and um, I, I constantly take counsel from. So. Um, I, I wouldn't say that he's the archetype of manliness. I'd say Roosevelt is more that for me. But, but overall, in life, leadership, uh, vision for the nations, ascent out of difficulty, uh, overcoming a hard relationship with a father and all that kind of thing, Winston Churchill is definitely my, my guy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's somebody that I know a little bit about a little bit about, uh, probably more through you know documentaries and things like that that I've seen on on Netflix or whatnot. But uh, uh, certainly a, a presence during uh, during a very great trying time for for the world. Um, what 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 would you say uh, was it about him that you admired most about him? You know, I got to tell you, there are many, many, many things. But the, the thing that I probably admired the most was that he had what, what should have been, in all, all natural forces working, should have been an unbelievably deforming relationship with his father. Uh, during most of Winston Churchill's life, um, his father was descending, in, or a young life, his father was descending into mental illness. And he hated Winston. Hmm. Uh, they sent his, the, the elder Churchill's, Winston's parents sent him off to um, what we would call private schools, what the British call public schools. Um, and and the, Winston was just at these schools, isolated and alone, would write his parents heartbreaking letters. Please come visit me. Please. I've been here for a year. Please come take me home. Please come see me. I mean, the, the, oh, the, the letters are just, just rip your heart out. Um, and the, the father would would make a speech at a at a facility two doors away from Winston's school and wouldn't go visit him. Um, Church, Churchill was haunted, so haunted by his father's image later in life that he he. Now I'm not taking away from the possibility this is this genuinely happened. I'm not going to pass judgment on that. But Churchill believed that the man actually appeared to him. Uh, he actually wrote a, a, a booklet called The Dream, describing his father appearing. Now, this is while Churchill was prime minister. Hmm. His father appearing to him and, and taunting him and saying he'd never accomplished anything and so on. Now, of course, psychologists will say this is a projection of a psychological state, and it might well be. I'm not going to pass judgment on it. But the truth is that Winston Churchill was haunted by the image of his father his whole life. What I admire about him is that when his father died, and his father died hating Winston, Winston said, 
you know, I could give myself to bitterness about him the rest of my life. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take up his mantle, uh, take up, uh, you know, as though his sword has fallen on the field uh, of battle, and I'm going to live out his mandate for the rest of his life. Hmm. So rather than give himself to a deforming uh, kind of bitterness, uh, Churchill instead said, I'm going to live out my father's legacy. I'm going to, I'm going to make a success of what he left uh, undone. And, and, and instead, Winston Churchill, a lot of what he achieved came about because, because he was, saw himself as living out his father's mandate. Hmm. Whereas another man might have, might have descended into you know, drunkenness and suicide because of the hatred of, of Lord Randolph. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I think that's what I most admire, and it really says something to men. doesn't matter what kind of man your father was, even if he never told you a kind thing in your whole life, if you could just find some part of his life to live out as a legacy. You know, maybe he was... Maybe he was a drunken fool, but every Easter, you know, he'd hand out eggs to the kids on the streets or, you know, whatever, some, some small thing that you can pluck out of your father's life, even if he was a, not a good man, uh, then that can become a, a mandate for you. That can become a sense of uh, empowering destiny for you. And that's what Churchill did that I most admire. I mean, he has many, many things that I've patterned myself after and am mentored by, but uh, taking his father's, his hateful father's legacy and making it his own and allowing that to fuel him to greatness is, I think, a, a largely unknown but essential part of the Winston Churchill story. That's such a powerful reframe. Uh, I, I was given some great advice many years ago um, that, that's along those same lines that said, um, you know, your father is, is pushing the football, to use a, a football metaphor here, to pushing the football as far down the field as he can. Of course, he's trying to get it in the end zone, whatever that means to you. Um, but that, um, that we as sons can pick up the football where he left off and, and, and push forward down the field, you know, and I think that what that helped me do just in, in my relationship with my father is to understand that, um, sure, I can fault him for this, that, or whatever, but to, to recognize that he got the football way back further than where I got it, and he was able to push it so much further down the field so that by the time I really came online and started to be aware of all this, that man, I'm so grateful that I didn't have to deal with what he dealt with and now I can pick it up and move it forward and, and not have the resentment um, tying me down, which is, uh, I think, uh, somewhat similar to what um, Winston Churchill, you know, the story that you were just talking about with Winston Churchill. Um, well, and I want to say, too, that, that this is real important for a lot of men because for a lot of men, they feel somehow tainted by their father's legacy passed on to them. But I know men whose fathers were, for the most part, not very good men. But they found one thing, just one thing, that they could pluck out of their father's life. Mm-hmm. And I, the illustration I just used is an example. I knew a guy whose father was a drunk. His father, he was he lost jobs, beat his mother, on and on and on. But every Easter, for whatever reason, this father would boil, would go out and buy chocolate eggs and then boil eggs and paint them and all that kind of stuff. And he'd walk the neighborhood giving out eggs to, uh, to kids around Easter time. I, don't, I, I can't even explain why he did it suddenly, why he became you know, the Easter bunny when he'd been a demon all year. Mm. But, but my friend said, look, my father loved children. He, he cared about people. He cared about Easter, even though he, maybe he had to clear a drunken haze to get there. Um, I'm going to take that as a mandate. And my friend has developed organizations that care for the poor and gone on and prospered and, and gives a lot away. And all of it comes out of a sense of mandate from his father, who otherwise might have left him a drunken failure, you know, by the side of the road as he tried, as he nursed his bitterness about his father. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't agree with you more. You know, my father was a war hero. 
um, and a high-ranking military officer, and I can sit around and bellyache for the rest of my life that he didn't hug me and love me and take, take time with me or understand me, or I can take his life as a mandate to go and achieve and serve noble causes and, and accomplish things. And I think that's what we men have to do because most men, I hate to say it, most men have some troubling relationship with their father. And once they get over their initial pain and bitterness, the, the key is to pick through the rubble of the father's life, if it's that bad, um, and find something that can become a mandate. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've been mentioning this idea of the mandate um, uh, either, you know, possibly brought to someone's experience through God or through their own recognition of, of what's needed. How do you know what the mandate is? Well, you find the thing that resonates most most with your life in the life of your father. Um, my my, I'm not I've never served in uniform. My the times of my life did not work out that way. Uh, but my father served noble causes. He served behind the iron curtain, serving the cause of freedom, and and he loved his nation. And so I I thought about all that, and and it became an influence to me. I I want to serve noble causes. I want to uh, uh, protect the defenseless. Uh, I want to leave a legacy. Um, I want to leave, you know, when I go to my father's grave, you know, the fact that he was a war hero, a decorated war hero and served around the world and achieved high rank and, you know, no one in his family had even gone to college. He went to the military academy and so on. So I'm not bragging about him. I'm saying, look, if I can't find some sense of Stephen, here's a commission to you from your father from a previous generation, then, uh, then I'm just an idiot because this was a, a man who accomplished a great deal. And even if he didn't invest in me personally, um, I can still sort of light a torch from his flame, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And like, like I'm saying, that doesn't have to be that you walk in the same footsteps. If your father was a doctor, you don't have to be a doctor. I don't have to be an army officer because my father was. But, but to not descend into bitterness and anger and resentment, to, to, to light a torch, to, to go off and accomplish noble things inspired by even the slim sliver of an example from your father uh, is something every man needs to do. In fact, I know a guy whose father died um, before this young man was even aware of who he was, uh, and his father had a bad reputation. But, but in my, my friend's older years, one guy who knew his father when he was growing up said, your father was, was amazing when it came to this. And it was one small thing. I won't go into it now. One small thing that he did and he did for other people. And in the midst of just you know boxes full of negative about his father he'd been told all his life, one guy told him one story that told him something good about his father, and that ignited all kinds of things in my friend's soul and mm -hmm. gave him a sense of, of mission and purpose. And again, guy was already accomplished. He was already an MD and practicing medicine, but there'd always been this sort of weight in his soul when it came to you know what he received from previous generations. So anyway, the point is to pick through the rubble, find the good stuff, let it be a general uh, inspiration to you, uh, because the way you view your father is often the way you're going to view yourself. If you see him as a bum you'll know you're hauling around a bum nature in you. Mm -hmm. What we want to do is uh, have you see yourself as uh, being projected forward by something good and noble out of your father's life. Uh, that's very profound. That, that's probably worth uh, a little bit of self-reflection right there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, All of us are in that situation. All of us. I don't care if your father was president of the United States. He still had his idiotic parts, and you still got to pick through the rubble and choose what to be propelled by. Uh, absolutely. Do you feel that – I mean I think this is a – an excellent um, uh, guide for, for men that are looking for something deeper, for, for looking for um, you know, a deeper purpose. 
But do you feel that it's it's necessary when you talk about this idea of a mandate um, and and its connection to one's father? Is that absolutely necessary, or could it be, you know, maybe you were just born and you were gifted in in you know playing the guitar, uh, and it has nece- not necessarily any relationship to your father? Or do you feel that it all, there always needs to be a, a connection to your father? I would say it doesn't have to always be your father, but I will say we are made to be part of something that precedes us, flows through us, and carries into the future. Mm-hmm. Now, that can be tribal. That can be family. Uh, I have a friend whose father was the one screw up in his entire family. Everybody else was fairly accomplished and moral and um, you know respected. And so he drew from the broader family rather than from his specific father, who was sort of the misbehaving black sheep of that family. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have another, I have another friend whose parents were both tragically killed uh, just shortly after he was born. He never knew them. Uh, he didn't really know much about their families, but he was part of an ethnic tribe that was noble and literally had a chief. This is in the Middle East. Um, and uh, and the, so he drew from the positive of, of, of his tribe um, and used and let that be a mandate, even though he never knew any much about his own personal uh, background. So, I think we are meant to have a, a legacy passed down. We are meant to leave a legacy. We're meant to receive from a legacy. We're meant to have a heritage. And that can be as broad as, hey, I'm an American and I want to serve noble causes. You know, it can be as broad as, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, I've got Native American friends who are like, look, I'm part of the wolf tribe in the, amongst the Cherokee and we've always been such and such and I'm going to live that out. Mm-hmm. But, but the point is we are all meant to have a heritage and for men – that sense of heritage is meant to come most immediately from our fathers. If we can't find it there, it can come from other places, but we should deal with it first. The main thing is no man should live his entire life uh, living out the implications of bitterness and anger towards his father. There are more noble and healthy ways to go. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I like helping men do. Uh, it's such a, it's such a noble and uh, worthy cause right now. There's there just seems to be such a deficit in in real masculine leadership, and uh, so it's such powerful work right now. I I admire what you're working on, and um, uh, I have a question. I, I was looking at some of the other books that you wrote. I don't I know we're a little bit short on time, but I'd love to just ask you um, the faith of George Bush, and then you ended up writing the faith of Barack Obama as well. And uh, I was curious what you learned out of those two books. Well, I love writing about the the faith of leaders and how their faith inspires them. Um, Two very different men, two very different religions. Uh, George W. Bush was kind of the, uh, you know, from this noble New England family that transplanted out to West Texas oil fields. And, um, And he was sort of the family screw up. He was sort of the family drunk. Um, and then he found a kind of an evangelical version of faith uh, right about the time he turned 40, and it really changed him. Uh, it really changed him. He stopped drinking. Uh, he began to learn more about his faith, more about the Bible, began to get good mentors. And that was right before he became governor of Texas. So really, his public political life grew out of his faith and the values that it gave him. It was a conservative, traditional um, sort of evangelical Methodism is probably what it was. Barack Obama very different situation. We all know that he uh, grew up largely fatherless. I mean, he had a biological father, obviously, but but the man never connected with him. Um, he was rootless. He was a rootless wanderer by his own description. And then he also came to a profound faith fairly early in his life um, and, was, and was baptized and welcomed into the church of Jeremiah Wright, 
um, theologically left-leaning, whereas George W. Bush was theological conservative, um, political left-leaning, whereas George W. Bush's mentoring was politically conservative. Uh, but both men, their personal lives and their politics animated by a version of faith. And um, I'm, I'm kind of known in, in D.C. and elsewhere for making the case that Barack Obama was serious about his faith. Um, he believed the core of the Christian gospel as traditionally handed down. Um, and then he was very left-leaning theologically and left-leaning um, politically. And George W. Bush was the opposite. But what I'm fascinated with is how a man's public life becomes animated by a faith that is sincerely held. And that was, I think, the strength of those two books. And they, they did very well. I'm very grateful to have written them. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. What a what a fascinating <laughs> the, the the dichotomy between the two of those is is uh, quite diverse and uh, fascinating. I'm, I, I have not read them yet, but I'm I'm looking forward to reading them. Um, how much more time do we have? Do you have a few more minutes? Yeah, I've got a few more minutes. Um, I'd love to ask you a little bit about the the miracle of the Kurds, the book that you wrote, um, and what your current thoughts are on what's going on in the Middle East right now. Well, it's a great time to ask me that because I've just recently returned from another trip to Iraqi Kurdistan where I was working with the Kurds. Um, on September 25th of 2017, the Kurds are going to have a referendum on independence. Um, that means that everybody in Iraqi Kurdistan is going to vote on whether they want to break off and be independent from the rest of Iraq. Iraq is a failing state. It's coming apart at the seams. So the Kurds are almost certainly going to vote in unanimously, almost unanimously for independence. That will begin a series of negotiations with Baghdad um, for Kurdish independence, and it will also bring the attention of the UN to the whole matter. Of course, the US is the key to this thing, but I think that the Iraqi Kurds are going to form the world's next new nation. Hmm. And um, I've been privileged to work with them and advise them and um, help with aid and within their, with their borders for many years. And now, um, what I was doing this last time was advising uh, advising them on the religious liberty clauses in their constitution. Uh, they realize they're going to have to have, um, they really, they should present their constitution to the world. They've had kind of a draft constitution sort of, uh, you know, bubbling along for a while and now they're getting more formal about it. So I've been advising them on those religious liberty, uh, aspects of their constitution, meeting with their religious leaders and looking at how they can have religious liberty there, uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan. What the good news is that a pro-democratic, pro-Western, moderately Islamic, uh, even pro-Israel in many cases, hmm. uh, independent republic is going to arise in the belly of the Middle East here very soon, and I think the United States should be supporting it. So that's why I'm, I'm helping over there. I first, first got involved in all this, by the way, when I was living in Nashville, Tennessee, and when Saddam was persecuting the Kurds, thousands of Kurds poured into Nashville, Tennessee, because there had been some Kurdish family, leading Kurdish families there for a while. And I began, like other people there, to help and to you know, teach them English and to help them get driver's licenses and jobs and so on. And that's what brought me in connection with the Kurds. I so, was going to ask you. Uh, well, that's fascinating. So they, they came here and, and you established those connections here. That's fascinating. Yes. Oh, man. Wow. I, I, you know, I feel like we, uh, there's so many other things that I want to talk to you about and, and to dive into. But uh, we've covered uh, a lot of different topics in the uh, in the near hour here that we've been chatting and um, I uh, like I said I know we're sort of short on time I want to be respectful of that uh, so Stephen thank you so much for uh, taking the time today and and chatting about all these different things it's important work I think what you're doing is a, a great lighthouse for many other men who are aspiring to 
do somewhat similar things in creating a, a more noble culture for masculinity in our world today. And um, so thank you for that. And, um, and, and thank you for sharing the, the journey, your journey with us as well and being so open about your experience. Um, I do want to ask you actually really quick before we go, I, had, I made a note while we were talking. One of the things that I've noticed about many great um, leaders that I've been exposed to in the last several years is their ability to storytell. Is that intentional with you? You're a great storyteller. Did you develop those skills or is it just natural to you? What What's your perspective on that? No, I had to learn that over time. I had to uh, get better at it. Um, I, I was pretty bad at it when I first started. But I think when you want to communicate with people, story is the easiest way for the human brain to assimilate information. And if you're going to be an effective leader, you have to be a good storyteller. You have to be able to tell a story in 15 seconds, just walking somebody through the plant floor, or you have to be able to tell a, tell a great story in 30 minutes in a major speech in D.C. So um, the stories you tell, Ronald Reagan was great at this as a politician, Churchill was great at this, uh, Margaret Thatcher was great at this, uh, Golda Meir was great at this. Um, this, this is an essential part of leadership because ultimately, here's what I know for sure, in six months, the gentlemen who are listening to this podcast will remember the stories you and I tell more than they will remember any data that we gave them or any current analysis or anything of that nature. Yes. They'll probably remember my Abu John story more than they'll remember anything else I've told them. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to have an impact on people, you've got to be a good storyteller. And I wasn't good at it initially. Um, and I'm, and I'm, and I've gotten a little bit better now just through practice and through asking the feedback of other people and, and through studying really good storytellers. So appreciate you asking me. Yeah, that's an essential part of certainly our culture of manhood, but also of leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, uh, wrap it up there. Stephen, thank you again. I appreciate your time and, uh, look forward to maybe doing more of these again in the relative near future. Thank you again for all the work that you're doing. I look forward to it, Peter. Thank you. All right. Take care. Hey, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.